Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter 4. Verses that were read during our time of uh, Advent are going to be the focus of our time today. But over the last several weeks, as we've lit the candles, we've focused on those different themes of hope and peace and joy. And again, today is love. And as we've looked at these, we've hopefully uh, unpacked them in a way that's not just uh, these are good themes for Christmas. My hope is that you've realized that these are things that ought to and can be true of the Christian life in an ongoing, consistent way. Um, we're familiar with things. Last week when we went over joy, we're familiar with things like the command to count it all joy. There's a lot of noise in my mind. So it's probably my fault, but they will help me know. <laughs> we're familiar with the commands, things like count it all joy, even when you encounter various trials. So it's not so much the what we're supposed to do or even what it looks like, but it's how we get there. How do we find something like joy? And last week we looked at it in terms of uh, Zechariah's response, the father of John the Baptist. Where did he find joy? Why was there joy promised with that birth? Well, well, the reason that he was able to find joy there are the same reasons that we can find joy at any and every time. There's joy in God's promises, joy in God's faithfulness to his promises. You read through that psalm of praise that Zechariah responds with in uh, Luke chapter 1, and God promised certain things to David, to Abraham. God promised things to his people through the prophets, and as he looks at the birth of his son, he sees the one that his son would prepare the way for, and God is faithful to his promises. First and foremost, in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, what we celebrate at Christmas, we see the faithfulness of God to what he promised David. Someone who will sit on the throne of David and rule unlike any other king that ever was or ever will be. We see the faithfulness of God's promises to Abraham that this one, this Jesus Christ, is going to be the one through whom all nations of the world will be blessed. And this is the one that the prophets spoke about when they promised one who would bear our griefs, our sorrows, through whose stripes we would be healed. Uh, Jesus Christ is the perfection of God's promises. And not only do we find joy in the faithfulness of God to his promises, because if he is faithful in the past, he will certainly be faithful to us. But we find joy in what God provides. Zechariah talked about God's mercy, and we talk about God's mercy and the idea of the gospel, and we forget that the gospel is good news, that it's good news that we preach to ourselves consistently because it brings us great joy. There's joy in knowing that although we were ruined sinners, God has reconciled us, restored us to right relationship through the work of Jesus Christ. And then he talked about light, that John the Baptist would prepare the way for the one who was called the light of the world. And sin darkens. Sin hardens. What a joy it is that God brings not only new life in Christ, but light that God opens our eyes to see things about him that you and I have the ability to look at the creation around us and not just say, what a beautiful morning, what a beautiful mountain, what a beautiful sunset, whatever it might be, but what a beautiful God who has done this. You and I can look at his word and not just say, what a wonderful story, but what a wonderful God who has moved through human history, his plans of redemption all the way until now. There's joy in the fact that God opens our eyes to these precious truths. And today we're going to move forward and we're going to talk about love. And we're going to read out of 1 John chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 7 through 12, and that's going to be our text today. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, 
For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. For no one has seen God at any time. But if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, that as we talked about last week with joy, that we would experience the joy of enlightenment. And so we pray along with the psalmist that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. I pray that you would remove those distractions, those things that turn our hearts from you. I pray that you, through the power of your spirit and the clarity of this word, would help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. That we would find joy, not only in the clarity of scripture, but Lord, that we would find joy in obedience. I pray that as we consider love, we would be reminded first of your perfect love poured out on us, and then our wonderful privilege and calling to love one another. Let us be a people who are characterized by love, and more specifically, the love of God. And we need your help to do all of this, and so we ask in Christ's name, amen. Okay. Thanks. Contingency plans. Love's a common theme. You cannot go through a day on the radio without hearing a love song. Uh, you cannot watch a movie on TV without some kind of a love interest. If you're on the Hallmark Channel, you could write the end before the beginning of the movie because the love is not just predictable. Some of you are shaking your heads. I'm not wrong. <laughs> it's sweet and it's good, but it's there and it's familiar. Why is that? <laughs> Why is love so common in everything? Why is it that love is a common theme in every language and culture and time and place and media and medium? Why is love everywhere, or at least a conception of love everywhere? And it's because you and I are hardwired for love not physical love, not necessarily the love demonstrated in marriage, but you and I are hardwired for intimacy and closeness in relationship. And the reason is, at its core, because you and I are made in the image of God. And we read that passage out of 1 John, and we read that God is love, and so those things begin to make sense, but we have to understand why John writes what he writes. Because again, we come to these books and we kind of open them up to develop a theme and we don't have a lot of the context. And so John writes for a very particular reason. When John writes about God being love and therefore you being called to love, he, he's doing that with a broader purpose in mind. And one of the things that John in particular does that's very helpful among biblical writers is John tells us exactly why he is writing what he writes. When he writes his gospel, John in John chapter 20, verse 31 says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, he says, I'm writing you this uh, account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth so that you might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing those things, you find eternal life. And when he writes this little letter, 1 John, 
He has a different purpose. And in 1 John 5, 13, he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He writes John, the gospel, so that you can know and believe. And he writes 1 John to those who do believe so that they might know that they have eternal life. Can you and I really know that we are saved? Can you have any assurance that you have eternal life? Well, John certainly says you can. And as he structures this little book, it centers around developing assurance based on what your life produces, assurance and obedience. And one of the consistent themes is love. But where does love come from? How does that impact us? And that's what we're going to open up today. First of all, we're going to look at the cause of love. Where does it come from? How do we know what it looks like? And then we'll look at the call to love. And uh, there's a particular thing. As we come toward Christmas, I know that there are younger ones in our church services. First of all, welcome. We are thrilled that you're here. We love the little noises. We love the little questions and the little conversations. We love the parents who steadfastly persevere in showing their kids that they are a welcome part of this body. Kids, for everyone fifth grade and under, a particular challenge for you today. There are going to be two words that I talk about today that are going to be different. And your parents are going to pretend that they know what they mean, but you are going to find the definitions and you're going to help them remember later on. All right, so I'll try to highlight those out, but you write those down. And then if you figure out an application, a way that this verse or these verses matter in your life, and you write those things down and you show them to me after service at some point, I have something for you. All right, so two words and one application. Adults, your reward, treasures in heaven. But it probably wouldn't hinder your walk to think through the same things. So we'll just start there. All right. So we're going to open this up, and we're going to look first at the cause of love. Where does it come from? Uh, as we open up verse 7, when we look at the cause of love, the first thing that we're going to see is the example, the only example of perfect love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That's John's call. Love one another. But before you can love one another, you have to know what that means and what it looks like. How do we know what it looks like to love one another? Well, it's because of where love comes from. How can you tell believers that one of the character traits that they're supposed to display, that one of the aspects of being part of the family of God is to love, how can you say that? Well, it's because of this reality that love is from God and that whoever has been born of God and knows God will reflect that love. We're called to love and love is from God. So when we think about love from the very beginning, we're not talking about a human emotion. Love is not something defined by the butterflies or the feels or the tingly sensation or anything in our human experience. We also can't do it on a more scientific term. Love is not a mixture of chemicals that are an evolutionary response to keep the species going. Love does not find its source in you or in I or in any human experience. Love finds its source and its beginning in God. And you see the reason for that in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. How is it that we can say that love comes from God? Well, the reason is because God is the very definition of love. He's not only the source of love. It's not just that love comes from God in this kind of universal way. It's that God is himself the definition of love. We say, what is God like? A child might ask that question. An adult might ask that question, and it's a great question. What is God like? And we begin to go through this list of these things that God is. God is love. God is light. God is merciful. God is holy. God is just. And we call those his attributes, his characteristics, those things that tell us about him. 
begin to think of God, maybe, as these bits and pieces that when you put them all together make up one whole God. And we think that way because when we talk about our attributes, that's how we think about them. Describe me. Be kind. Matt is 5'10", if he's wearing the right shoes. Matt has brown hair and hazel eyes. Matt is wearing a decidedly non-festive shirt. And you take all these bits and pieces and you put them together and you begin to get a picture of who I am. But those characteristics aren't necessarily holistic and they're not necessarily consistent. Matt has brown hair, but probably not as much as he did 10 years ago. You could maybe even use it in my personality. Matt is patient, except for when he isn't because of whatever reason. And the danger is, because you and I only experience attributes in that way, we begin to think of the attributes of God in that same way, and that's not the case. You see, God is not a pie where a piece of him is love, a piece of him is just, a piece of him is holiness. When we talk about God and the attributes of God, he is the perfection, the completion of all of those attributes all of the time. And not only is he the perfection and completion of all of those attributes, but all of those things are unchanging and never in conflict. In other words, where Matt can say, Matt is patient except when his hunger outweighs his patience, God's love is never at war or in conflict with God's justice. His holiness and his mercy don't have to find a balance. They exist in perfection together all the time. So to say that God is love is not to say that because God is love, he cannot be just. He cannot punish sin, and that's so common. You and I are likely to hear it at some point. The God that I believe in, the God who is love, would never send someone to hell. Because the human mind simply cannot grasp love and holiness, mercy and justice. And yet here God is, the perfection of all of those things. Because the love of God isn't a love like ours. The love of God is perfect love. It's that love that doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, the love that is patient, the love that is kind. All those things that we experience and that we pursue and that we achieve in bits and pieces and reflections, he is always existing in the fullness and perfection of. And because God is the fullness and perfection of love, that's how John says that everyone who loves is born of God. It's like a family trait that's passed down. We see children that look like their parents. Sometimes we're thankful that they look like one parent more than the other, but there's a family resemblance that is passed down, and the reality is that those who are part of the family and the household of God bear a resemblance to God who is their father.
something we say, but this love is demonstrated, this love is proven in what he's done. And you've got to understand that if God is the perfection of all of these attributes, if God is complete and whole in all of these things all the time, then this love didn't start at Christmas. This love didn't start as God chose Abraham or David. This love didn't start with the creation of Adam and Eve. This is a love that has been perfect and complete and whole from eternity past. Kids and adults who are paying attention, there's a a theological word here that we talk about. Well, we don't really talk about it, but it's called aseity. Aseity, and it means that God doesn't need anything from his creation to be exactly who he is. He is entirely self-existent. Which means that God doesn't need you or I to show his love. It's hard for us to think about because we are so naturally the objects of his love that we we understand that part but understand that from the beginning of time God existing in Trinity Father Son and Holy Spirit existed in perfect love and fellowship you read John 13 14 15 16 17 as Christ goes through that high priestly prayer he talks about the perfection of relationship that existed between he and the Father before the world began So God's love was perfect before creation, constantly lived out in the Trinity. But now John says this is how it was manifested, demonstrated. Look at what he says, verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest, shown to be clear among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Christmas is the celebration of the most clear, the most powerful, the most tangible demonstration of God's love. That the son that he loved before the foundation of the world, the perfect second person of the Trinity, who knew nothing but perfect wholeness and completion and love between the Godhead, would come and breathe the air that he made that he would take on our weakness and our frailness and our humanity, that he would become like us so that we could live through him. Christ, the light and the life, took on our flesh so that he might give us light and life. That is the perfect, most gracious, most amazing picture of love that we can comprehend. That's why he goes on to say, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. This is love. Not that we loved God. You want the definition and the picture of devotion and love? It's not in the way you and I love God. Not in the best human effort to be devoted toward the God who made us. Even right affection, even transformed hearts, our love toward God isn't isn't the perfection, the picture of love, but this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It would have been unimaginably, unthinkably humble for Christ merely to become human. A greater step down in humility than than you and I can even get our minds around. 
how much more so that he would be obedient and humble to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he says that he sent him to be the propitiation for our sins, and that's that second theological word there. And kids, if you really want to make your parents squirm a little bit, you can ask them what propitiation means, and we'll give you a minute to have them explain it. (laughs) If you have the NIV, it says the atoning sacrifice, and that's appropriate, but I have a better definition for propitiation. And it's a definition that I actually got out of a book called Theology, which is in our library, which is a fantastic book that teaches kids theology. When you talk about propitiation, it's the idea of the anger taker awayer. And you say, it doesn't sound very appropriate for somebody with a college degree. No, but you're going to remember it. Propitiation is the anger taker awayer. It's what satisfies or removes the right and holy and right wrath of God against sin. God, because he is holy, must deal with sin. He is righteously angry toward those things that violate his holiness and his character. A propitiation is what satisfies or removes that. Jesus Christ came to be the propitiation, the anger taker awayer for us. It's an uncomfortable thought that the God of all creation was righteously and rightly angry with you and I who were sinners and rebels against him, isn't it? But it's a beautiful reality that God provided the thing, the son that satisfied that wrath on our behalf. See, God is love, and his love isn't at war with his justice. How can God be both just and merciful? How can he be both holy and forgiving? Jesus is the answer. Christmas is the answer. That is what we celebrate here. Not just the birth of a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, not just the life that he would live, but the fact that that Christ who was born at a point in human history would go on to live the life that you and I were called to live but could not and did not and would die the death that you and I deserved and in doing so would satisfy, would fulfill the wrath of God against sin so that we could be restored to relationship with him. We have to start there with the perfection and the proof of God's love before we can start talking about how you and I are called to love one another. Because if we don't understand what love is, if we don't have a very clear picture of what real love looks like, then you and I are in danger of chasing the wrong target, aren't we? Because we are locked and immersed in a culture uh, that struggles, to put it mildly, with the idea of love. You and I live in a cultural moment where the prevailing idea is that love is love. And that any expression of affection is not only okay, but is worthy of celebration. The reality is that love isn't love if it doesn't match up to the perfection of the definition of love. How can you say that not all love is love, that not all affection is good? Because love that is other than what God has called love, love that is other than what God has demonstrated love to be is actually not love at all. True love is a reflection of divine love. True love on our level 
is only possible as we mirror that image of God that's placed in us, as we reflect that love that he has shown what it looks like. And while we might not be able to perfectly mirror that attribute, we can clearly define it and describe it, not because we've figured it out, not because we've come to some cultural consensus or even a church consensus for what love should look like, feel like, sound like, but because God has shown us what love is like. He's demonstrated it in his giving of the Son. He has told us what it looks like in his word. And based on that, now we can move on to the call to love one another. So now let's move on to the call to love. And when we talk about the call to love, really what we have to understand first is that that is not so much only a call, but it is a command. Uh, To love is not a suggestion. To love is not a good idea. To love for the believer is not just something that makes life a little bit more pleasant, especially around the holidays. The call to love is this clear and compelling command, but not in the sense that it's love or else. It's this command that comes with not just the burden of obedience, but a delight in obedience. It's a privilege that you and I get to pursue this call to love together. And so we come to verse 11, and we see this command rooted in the reality of who we are. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God has loved us this way, and he has, then that's the foundation for our love. We don't love because we are loving people. We don't love because we are outgoing people. We don't love because we are people people. I don't know how to make it any more clear. Love is not based on a personality trait. As much as the world would have you believe that loving people are born a certain way, that is only true in the sense that loving people are born of God. And that for those who are born of God, they are then loving people. Because God has loved us, because he's not only the perfection of love, but because he's poured out his love on us, we're called and able to, to love others. Because God sent the perfect, divine, sinless Son of God to love ruined sinners, we have a picture of what it looks like to love adversity. Because the gospel makes real change in our hearts, we have the ability to love like God does. And when we understand the love of God, then it helps us answer the why and the how. Why would we love people? And we all have that person that we think of when we say that. Why should I love that person, that type of person, that group of people? Why should I love the people that are difficult, the people that are different, the people that don't deserve love? And we have the answer for that. Because you and I were not loved because we were lovely. God did not pour out his love and his affection, his salvation upon people who deserved it, people who earned it. While we were yet, what? Sinners. Christ died for us. Why love others? Because God has so loved us. And How do we do that? What does it look like to love people, even the difficult people? Well, what does the love of God look like? God gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. It is a giving, self-sacrificing love. It is a love that has at its center and its goal the eternal well-being of the object of its love. So how do I love others in that way? A love that gives even at the expense of self. A love that has the eternal good of the object of my love as its main concern. 
And then, of course, there are 10,000 ways that that works itself out practically. And God, again, in his kindness and his love and his goodness, gave us some pretty helpful definitions on what that will play itself out and look like. How do I know what love looks like? Because God tells us love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. Love is not proud. It is not rude. It's not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but love rejoices with the truth. And we're not left on our own to kind of pick and choose and scramble and wonder if I'm actually loving. God, in his mercy, provides us this picture of the perfection of his love in Christ. And then these definitions of love that help us to set real uh, words and real situations and real tangible responses to these things. And that kind of love is not instinctual. That kind of love is not a natural part of our fallen flesh. Not even the most outgoing person has this as their default heart response. That kind of love as their response. That's why John wrote what he did back in in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This kind of love has God as its source. Not just, again, in the sense that God is the source of all love, which he is, because he is the definition of love, but this kind of love poured out in the lives of one another is from God. And because we have been born of God, born again, renewed, reborn, regenerated, transformed by the gospel, then we have the ability to love. And that brings us to the final verse. We have the capacity to love because we're born of God. We have the command to love because God has loved us. And uh, we are called to love as a reflection of the way that we've loved him. And verse 12 closes with the clarity of love. What does it do? Verse 12, no one has seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. No one has seen God. Well, what does John mean by that? Why does he say that and why here? Uh, Because if Jesus was God, and he was... And John was one of those disciples who saw Jesus. Well, then how could he say that no one has seen God? This isn't to take the deity of Christ away. It's to recognize that as Christ walked on earth, that deity, that brilliance, that majesty was was veiled. If you look at the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, you see glimpses of it. You see bits and pieces and pictures of it. You see the glory of Christ in the authority when he teaches. You see the majesty of Christ in the power when he heals. You have Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And for a moment, you have that humility of Christ kind of peeled back, and this radiant brilliance shines out. But even that, as glorious and as fearsome and awesome as that was for those disciples that saw that, even that is only a glimpse of a veiled glory. John's, again, not taking a swipe at the divinity of Jesus. He's saying what everybody knows, that no one has ever seen the radiant fullness of God's brilliant, majestic holiness. We couldn't bear it. We simply could not bear that kind of majesty. But that raises a question. Because if no one has seen God, then how do we know what he is like? Well, we've talked about a couple of ways over the past couple of weeks. How do we know what God is like? Well, his creation tells us something about what God is like, doesn't it? Paul writes in Romans 1 that 
his eternal power and his divine nature are clearly seen in what he's made. God's creation tells us some things about him. We have God's word that reveals things about God. His law tells us about what his character is like. The history of his interactions with Israel and his chosen people show us what his character is like and his proven faithfulness is like. God's word shows us something about what God is like. In the Gospel of John, he makes it clear that Jesus shows us what God is like. In John chapter 1, verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that is Jesus Christ, has made him known. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. And that makes perfect sense because Colossians 1 and 2 tell us that the fullness of deity dwelt bodily in Christ. But here's the really fascinating, beautiful, amazing privilege. You and I, as we love have the ability to show a watching world something about what God is like. If God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. Why? Because no one has seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God shows what his love is like through how you and I love. When fallen, finite, irritable, selfish sinners... have a radical heart change because of the power of the gospel and are suddenly able to love others with this kind of love, it points back to the power of God. The idea that his love is being perfected in us. Not that his love needs us to make it perfect, but that his love is shown to fullness, to completion. It completes the act of God's love as we show that love in the lives of others. That makes perfect sense, because what did Jesus say in the upper room? We read at the beginning of service, a new command I give to you, that you love one another. And he says, by this, all men are going to know that you're my disciples, by the amount of theology books that you've read, by the church attendance record, by the giving at the end of the year, by the Facebook debate that you absolutely destroyed everyone in. No. Now, is it good to read and sharpen your faith? Is it good to regularly gather together with God's people? Is it good to be generous and meet the needs of the body and of individuals in that body? Is it good to speak the truth in whatever context you're able to? Absolutely, it is. But what is the defining characteristic that will show the world what a disciple of Christ looks like? Love. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What is going to set us apart more clearly, more powerfully than anything else is our love for others. Not love as the world defines it. Not a love that's convenient. Not love for those who deserve it. Love that's only made possible because we have been loved with a love like this. Love modeled after that same love that would take the son and send him to die for the objects of his love. For four weeks, we've lit candles and we've talked about important things. Hope, peace, joy, love. And we agree that those are all good things. More than that. 
I think we would agree that these are all things that we want to have. Things that we would want to be a regular part of our life, if only that were possible. And what I don't want to happen is for us to move on kind of with our busyness and our celebrations, as good and as joyful as those are, and think of these as just kind of these lofty goals that we pursue and that we might sort of get a hold of one day. I certainly don't want us to think that if I work really hard, I might be able to experience love or joy or peace or hope, but I can't really imagine having them all, all the time. What I want us to remember, and what I want to leave you with as we leave kind of these themed messages of Advent, is the idea that these are what define and describe the normal Christian life. And in saying that, it might sound kind of foolishly optimistic or maybe even offensive. Because when I say these things define and describe the normal Christian life, they certainly don't describe the common Christian life. And I want to make sure we understand the difference between common and normal. Just because me or a, whatever percentage of the church has traded peace for anxiety or despair for joy or antagonism for love doesn't mean that that's the norm. I remember back in elementary school, uh, once or twice a year, you had to go into the nurse's office and you had to touch your toes because they were checking for scoliosis in your spine, right? Scoliosis means your backbone's not curved the right way. Looks like an S and it shouldn't do that. If 80% of the population suddenly had scoliosis, we wouldn't begin to define normal as a curved spine we would still define normal as a straight back that looks like it's supposed to. How tragic it would be if we said because most people fall into this condition that that's actually preferable and what's supposed to be pursued. We would say that's foolish. And if the reality is you and I look around and we see not only a world, leave the world out of it, we see a church that is largely not hopeful, not peaceful, not joyful, and not loving, and we say, well, it must be okay, because after all, nobody lives like that. And I look at my life, and I begin to look at my circumstances, and I say, well, of course I got angry in that situation, because anybody would. Guys, it can be as common and as foolish as me preparing for a sermon. And as many of these as I do a year, you'd think that I know that on Saturday, I'm not going to be where I think I need to be. And the constant temptation is for me to look at that passage that isn't fully developed and ready and come to the place where I have no joy or peace about what I'm supposed to be doing the following morning. And what brings me back to joy and peace, which, by the way, ought to be the normal response. Why? Because that's what the fruit of the Spirit is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's, that's what God says he does in the lives of people. What brings me back to that isn't finishing my sermon. 
little insight into the process. I have never felt 100% ready any time I've walked up these steps. I could always use another couple hours. What brings me back to joy and peace in the process is coming back to God's Word and places like Romans chapter 1 that tell me that it's the gospel that's the power of God to change heart and not some foolish preacher. How is it that you and I can not only expect but anticipate living lives that are actually characterized by these things? It's in coming back toward the truth of what God says. In entering into each other's lives in a way that says those things that you're feeling, the anger, the resentment, the bitterness, the despair, they're not normal, not in a sense of condemning them, because they are common, and we know why they're common. We live in a fallen world, and we are fallen people. None of this is condemning any of those things. It's simply the beautiful reminder that you and I need to give that we don't have to stay there. Coming into each other's lives and saying, this thing that you are feeling does not have to characterize where you are at. Let's work through why you are at this point and how God says you can move beyond it, because that's what he's promised. Not a change in circumstance, but a change of heart. Because that's what the gospel does. So as we move toward Christmas, as we move into a new year, as we move forward together for however many years the Lord gives us together, I'd love to see us be a people who characterize these things, not as lofty goals that we might assume to get someday, but as those things that we expect to be produced in our lives and in the life of our body. And that we joyfully and helpfully and powerfully encourage each other toward on a consistent basis. And when it comes to love, what can we be thinking on this week? First of all, we need to be a people who remember God's love. And for some of you, you might need to wrestle with God's love for the first time. This love that you've heard about, that you might have sung about, you know we talk about it, you know there's Bible verses about it. This is the demonstration of God's love. This is the clearest example that the God of eternity, the holy God of all creation, sent the Son to die for our sins. To be raised again in power and glory, to sit at the right hand of the Father, to make intercession for us, and to come again to gather his people and to rule over his creation If you've never experienced that love of God, I would love to talk with you. Maybe you say my background prohibits it. Maybe my current habits make it impossible for God to love me. After all, isn't God holy? He is. But the holiness and the love of God aren't in conflict. God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He made him to be the propitiation, the anger taker away, or no matter what your background or your failure is. And for those of us that have experienced that, how good is it to be reminded of God's love? There are times this week when I have felt unlovely, by the way, because I was being unlovely. We've all gone through periods of loneliness, anxiety, despair, God's love poured out for us moves us back toward those things. 
that you and I, because of what God has done, have a hope and a future and an eternal inheritance. And second, we need to be a people who reflect God's love. Christian, you and I are called to love. Jesus is challenged. What's the greatest commandment? And we know the answer. First and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God, right? And the second one is like it, love your neighbor. When Jesus says that the whole law can be summarized by love, love for God and love for others, you and I must reflect that same kind of love. Because God's love has been poured out on us, you and I ought to love others. Others who are easy to love, and there are. Others who are difficult to love, and there are. Not on your own strength. Certainly not on my own strength. How do we get there? Well, by remembering God's love. That is a huge prompting toward loving others. And by asking him to help me do what he says I've been able to do. So this week, what a great question to ask. Who can I demonstrate the love of God toward? And within the next week, many of us will have ample opportunity to do that with people that it is easy to love and that it's hard to love. Let's pray. Lord, we think on these things and love and hope and peace and joy. And we know that we fall short and we know that sin is the root cause of all of that. Lord, I pray that as we look at these things, we wouldn't be discouraged because we don't attain them. I pray that you would encourage us because we have the ability, not on our own, but through you to live in light of these things, to live this way. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that pursue love and joy and hope and peace because we understand that they're possible through you. That as we come to understand who you are, you bring us love and joy and hope and peace. As the gospel continues to transform our hearts and you grow us in our faith and in our maturity, uh, that we can display these things in a clearer and clearer way. Lord, you've given us a body of believers to remind us, to stir us up toward these things. God, I pray for those that are going to struggle with any number of these things over the coming weeks. I pray that you would prove yourself faithful as you always do. That you alone would be the source of our hope, of our joy, of our peace, of our love. That you would fill us to overflowing with these things, that the fruit of the Spirit would become evident in our lives. And Lord, we pray that as a result of these things, the world would see a difference in who we are. And that perhaps even this week, we would have opportunities to present the gospel of Jesus Christ that can make these changes in others, that can give them assurance, that can give them hope and peace and joy and love, that can give them eternal life that is only found in the Son. So God, change our hearts, change our minds. Put the gospel in our mouths. And I pray that this would be a season of tremendous worship and encouragement. We do love you. We desperately need you. We praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.